0: July 12th, 1988, I was born, so I'm 32 years old. <laughs> feel I like, feel like an old man up here, honestly. <laughs> but no, God is good. God's been real good, you know. Um, yeah, thank you guys for letting me come back. Uh, love coming here to Stonebridge, man. You guys are, you guys are family. Uh, and so, shout out to your pastors, uh, Matt, Josh, for asking me to come out here and speak to you guys. I'm really grateful for that. Uh, he mentioned my name. My name is Jared. I am uh, one of the pastors over at Cornerstone Church. I have a role there. I'm on the pastoral ministry team. I'm also in, on the local missions team. And so I uh, do a lot of community outreach there. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm pretty new to the ministry. I've been doing ministry, honestly, I feel like for uh, as long as I live. But vocationally, uh, it's only been about a year and a half now. And uh, God has been so gracious to lead me in this way. I couldn't have foreseen it. And I'm so grateful uh, to be doing this. To be doing this work, and so, uh, yeah, let's jump right in. I want to do before I jump into our sermon. I want to do a little introduction. I think I'd be um, I'd be remiss really if I didn't get to talk about our cultural moment that we're in right now. Right, uh, 2020 has been a wild ride, to say the least. And I know a lot of you guys can own up to that. You guys can you guys are feeling that the tensions, the the pressures, the anxieties of what 2020's brought us here. Um, the last time I was here was about a year ago, and I was just talking to my wife, just kind of reminiscing over that and thinking about, man, it's been a year since I've gotten up in front of somebody and I've talking to a church. I've been doing podcasts, I've been doing a lot of speaking to cameras, but um, yo, give yourselves a round of applause for coming here and, and, and actually being together, right? <laughs> this feels good, this feels good. And so, yeah, I wanna talk about, man, this thing, COVID. It's, it's so crazy that God can use something that we can't really identify, something that's really small, something that maneuvers, but has such a huge impact to get all of our attention. Those of you guys who aren't new here to Stonebridge, go ahead and look around and you can see the impact that a small virus that started in this small town in China, right, comes across Asia, goes across Europe, makes its way over the seas, finds its way onto the coast of America and even into this landlocked state, the small state of Iowa, and even into our small towns of Ames and Iowa. Just look around, it's not the same. You know it. And so, as we think about these things, we think about crises. I can talk about the impact of COVID all day, I can talk about kind of the things that it's changed in our lives the jobs, the stores opening, the uh, the masks, right? Can we just say that singing with masks on is just terrible, <laughs> right? Anybody else feel it? I was getting hot, just sweating in my mouth when I was trying to sing the song. And uh, they put this thing up right here so I don't spit on you guys. And I'm, I'm not—listen, I'm, listen, listen. I'm not sure. I'm, I might make my way around this thing. I don't know, okay? So if you're uncomfortable, throw your mask on, and, and, and we'll make it work out. Um, but, yeah, crises— The thing about a crisis is, is the impact is huge. There's a huge impact. But the impact doesn't just create this crater, the impact makes shock waves. Every crisis does that. Every major impact does something like that. It makes this shock wave. And then those shock waves, what ends up happening is it ruffles some of that ground and underneath it starts to uncover some things. And we've seen in the last few months that COVID isn't just a, disease, but I think it's here to tell us a little bit, something more about ourselves. And when we apply that to who we are here in America, I think the last few months, especially, you know, we can talk about some of the first amendment right things, the second amendment right things, people arguing back and forth and saying, man, uh, my rights don't matter. My voice doesn't matter. The media only portrays one voice. The second amendment, you know, the government's up to something, they're trying to get our guns. And then I think about the, 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 uh, the in Michigan at the state capitol, militia of men with rifles and ar 15 storming the capitol building, right? Trying to make a point protesting against what's going on. You can't take our rights. But the injustice I want to talk about the most are the racial injustices that have been under uh, uncovered in our country, right? Just It wasn't only, what, two months ago, a few months ago, that we had week after week after week of racial injustice committed against our black and brown brothers and sisters. And so it's taught us something about ourselves, if I can say America as a whole, right? It's taught us something. It's taught us something that the past isn't too far Ago. The past isn't so much the past. The past is actually still the present here. Right? But 2020 isn't unique. 2020 isn't unique in its, in its racial tensions. The racial tensions in America have been here since the conception of America, since 1619 and even some date further back when the first slaves were brought here on American soil. And so what we've done is we've we've try to pacify the tension, try to pacify the division. And we've done so many things, right? But a crisis, a crisis like, 20, like like COVID-19, it reveals those kind of things. And so I've been wrestling. I've been wrestling with a lot of different emotions. I've been wrestling with emotions of sadness, emotions of anger, emotions of desperation, if I can be honest but I've also been wrestling with this, with this uh, weird emotion of uh, encouragement as well, right? It's, there's an encouragement that I've even been given the freedom to come up here and speak on such an issue in a place like Boone, Iowa. There's encouragement, because you can see there's a wrestle, not only in the black and brown community anymore, not only in the impoverished communities anymore, but there's a wrestle within the majority Culture. There's a wrestle in the majority communities as well, and so there's this sense of encouragement as I sit here and I think about how can we move forward with this, right? How can we how can we go the next step? Because 2020 happened, but 2022 was coming, 2030 is coming, 2045 is coming. And if it's going to be anything like 2020, if it's going to be any different than 2020, any different than 2016, any different than 2012, any different than 1992, any different than 1964, any different than 1968 even, 55, okay, 1865, 1619, the church, the church, the church has to step up. And so I'm wrestling, I've been pleading, I've been having many a conversation. This is my first time I get to address the church with this issue. The world has done its best. Affirmative action, (laughs) all different kind of programs that's trying to bridge this divide. But the church has the one and only true hope and the church has been complicit, but not only complicit more than that, has had direct action in this division, in this racial Tension. We have to own that as a body of believers, I believe. We have to own that. And if we wanna be any different, when we wake up in our beds five years from now, not having this conversation, the church has to do something. So I found some hope. I found some encouragement, y'all. But my encouragement, surprisingly, not surprisingly, it's in Jesus Christ. But it's not in the Jesus Christ that's in the open grave, the, the empty tomb. It's not necessarily in the Christ that was the picture of the Christ that's on the, the perfect picture of the sacrifice on that cross. It's not even in the, the healing Jesus. The hope that, I've, that Jesus I found my hope in is in the Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane when he's on his knees praying with every ounce of hope in his body giving over to every anxiety every feeling of depression and saying father if it is your will pass this cup for me but not my will thy will be done And so y'all i want to let y'all know i in many of my black and brown Brothers and sisters, in this thing for the long haul. We don't let the racial tensions in America deter us from knowing that the hope of Jesus Christ is the only hope that we have. And so I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you, join us in this fight. Join us, feel the burden of your brothers and sisters. Walk with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Be our voice. Be there with us. Help us walk with Christ and point others to Christ as we navigate this tension. And so let me pray for us really quick and then we're gonna jump in and shift gears to the sermon. So Jesus, thank you so much for being who you are. You are the bridge, you are the glue, you are the savior, you are the king, you are the Messiah. And life is found in you and you alone, it's not found in any pigment or skin color, it's not found in any culture Uh, You are the God of all, Lord, and I pray that you work it into our hearts to understand that, the depth and breadth of it, and live as if it is true, Lord. Live as if it is true. Lord, we can do this only when you say it is so. You work in our hearts. You make the changes. You are the only thing that is. You are the only thing that exists, Lord. You are good. Allow us to believe that. Allow us to follow suit. I ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, so you guys have been doing a sermon series the last few weeks. We're in Genesis. Um, I'm going to be in Genesis 28, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those out, Genesis 28. Uh, and you guys have been, well, we're going to be jumping into the Jacob and Esau story. Okay, we're actually coming in on the, on the back end of that story. And so before I jump in, I want to I catch us up into where we are. So uh, Jacob and Esau, we all know the story. It's a very uh, prominent story. They were twins, sons of Isaac and Rebekah. And Isaac, he was the son of Abraham, through whom the Abrahamic covenant would be passed down to. The Abrahamic covenant, this thing that was found in Genesis 12, it was God that was speaking to our father Abraham in verse two, Genesis 12 verse two, he says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And so this, the immediate impact of this covenant is that he's gonna give Abraham over to the land that he has called him to. He's gonna deliver it into his hands. But if we take a, a look back, just one chapter back in chapter 11, we see a, a people who has already tried this, who has already tried to kind of, uh, uh, to create an Abrahamic covenant. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to make their name great, They wanted to create a tower that reached into the heaven to extend and reach and bind this relationship with God. And so we look at Genesis 12 and we see what's, we ask the question, what's different? Abraham, who was not an outstanding man, who was a Gentile by any stretch of the term, and God chose him. He said, It's you. It's God. He's the one that makes the covenant. We can't do it on our own. This is the meta-narrative of the scripture. It's part of the meta-narrative of, of the scripture. It's God who chooses who he wants. He is sovereign. And so the immediate impact of this covenant is that God will give Abraham and his descendants the land that he has called them to. And there's an activation to this blessing. The activation to this blessing is that Abraham has to go. He has to leave his family, his father's house, the land that he's from. He has to leave in order to activate this blessing. In verse 1, he has to go out from his relatives and his father's house and go to the land that God will show him. But we know, right? We get we're on the other end of this thing. We get the New Testament, we get the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we get the reception of the Spirit. And so when we look back on the Abraham covenant, we can see that this covenant is not just a covenant that was to be an ethnic blessing for the nation of Israel, but it was to be through Jesus a multi-ethnic blessing for the whole world, a universal blessing. It's a blessing that's also for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through his blood that he paid on the cross, we too get to be sons of Abraham. We are grafted in to this blessing. That's good news, y'all. That's good news. This blessing was, this covenant was fulfilled in Jesus. Galatians 3.29 tells us that, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise and it's also commanded by Jesus in the great commandment in Matthew 28, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. That word nations in that is the Greek word for ethnos in the New Testament. And that word for ethnos is where we get our word ethnicity. He's a God of multitude, he's a, he's a, he's a God of all, of many okay it stretches overall listen god desires a mixed multitude we know that from exodus when moses leads his people out of egypt right with him i believe in exodus 14 it says he brings a mixed multitude with him it's not a uni ethic promise it's a multi-ethnic promise we also see this in the epistles, if we jump to the New Testament with the Apostle Paul breaking down the walls between the Jews and the Gentiles. Okay? This is, a, this is a, a multi-ethnic promise. It's a multi-ethnic promise that I believe is built in the local church and also the universal church. And so when we think about this covenant, God blesses Abraham. He also blesses his sons. One of which is named Isaac. Isaac marries Rebecca and they have these two sons, Jacob and Esau. And so this pregnancy, Rebecca's ushering two nations into the world. Rebecca was barren just like Isaac's mother, Sarah, or Isaac's mother. Um, And Rebecca becomes pregnant after Isaac's prayer. And this pregnancy was really difficult. My wife and I, we have three children, we have three baby girls. Uh, five, three, and one. And we are also pregnant with a fourth. And so I shared that news for the first time on Thursday with a large group, but now I'm sharing it with you guys. We're expecting a fourth child. And so the first three, it was a a, a easy pregnancy, so to speak, me saying the easy pregnancy, right? <laughs> uh, but there wasn't much sickness. There wasn't much fatigue. There was some fatigue, but not as much as there is now. And there's a lot of sickness now, there's morning sickness, there's afternoon sickness, there's evening sickness. And so we're, absolutely, amen, can I get an amen? And so she's, she's, she's feeling, she's, she's wrestling, right? And she's asking, man, what's going on? There's something different, there's something going on in my stomach. And Rebecca had the same thing, but it doesn't necessarily match the struggle of Rebecca. You see Esau and Jacob, they struggled with each other inside of her. And the Lord's reply in Genesis 25, 23, when Rebecca goes to the Lord and falls to her and says, said, yo, what's going on inside my stomach? He says, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the other will serve the younger. So when they were born, they were given names that derived from these circumstances of their birth. There was Esau and there was Jacob. Esau was the firstborn. He was a little bit darker. He had red skin. He was covered with fur. His name Esau and could also be Edom. That kind of describes his physical appearance. Jacob was more normal looking. He was the secondborn. He was actually the opposite of Esau. He was hairless. Okay. Esau was a a outdoorsman. He was an outdoorsman. He was someone call him, you know, daddy's daddy's little man. Esau was daddy's little man. He liked to hunt. He liked to get rough and tough. He liked to go out and hunt and shoot the game and bring it back to the house. Jacob, not so much. He was uh, an indoor man. He was what some maybe call a mama's boy. (laughs) And, and, you know, ain't nothing wrong with a mama's boy, okay? If you're a mama's boy, I've already spotted you. I'm a a mama's boy. It takes more than no one, okay? I could spot him a mile away, all right? There's nothing wrong with the mama's boy, he was quiet. He didn't do that, he helped around the house. And so this division, it led to this sibling rivalry. They were so different from one another. And it ultimately ended very poorly. Jacob deceives Esau out of his birthright, we know that. Jacob steals Esau's blessing, we know that. Goes to his father Isaac in his old age. He's blind and Jacob deceives him. On the back hills of that, Esau goes up and says, hey father, do you have any blessing left for me? He's in tears, he's in shambles, he's the firstborn, it's supposed to go to him. And the only thing Esau gets is a spelling out of the consequences, there's no more blessing left. And in hopes of scraping some blessing away, his father can only say to him, you will have hardship, you will live in danger, and you will also live in slavery. So this obviously put him at odds with Jacob. To get protection from Rebekah, Jacob goes to her, and Rebekah and Isaac connive to send Jacob away to go to her father's land, go to Uncle Laban's house. And so he's sent away for two reasons to escape the wrath of Esau and to find a wife. Isaac prays along the way. He prays, I pray that God finds you on your way to Uncle Laban's house. I pray that he gives you the promise that he's given me and so I want to begin the sermon here the point I want to make the main theme is God's goodness in seemingly godless circumstances and so we want to ask a question of the text and the question I want to ask the text is how can we experience God's goodness and so, from this point, the Jacob and Esau story can be broken down in four acts, I believe. And so, I've broken it down into four acts. Act one is Jacob as the deceiver. Act two is God meeting Jacob. Act three is Jacob meeting Rachel, and act four is the role switched around. Jacob actually becomes the deceived. <clears throat> and so, in Genesis chapter 28, we see a few things. The first thing we see is that despite Jacob's deception, he receives love from his parents. Genesis 28 verse one, read with me here, it says, so Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him. Then he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padanaram, to the house of your mother's father Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessings given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Padanaram Aram, to Laban son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. And so we see, even though Rebekah and Isaac, they were at odds in their relationship. You see Esau, um, there's this nugget here, do not marry a Canaanite woman, in verse one there. They were foreign women. Esau was erratic. He was irrational. He did not care. He married multiple foreign women. And this actually caused some tension in the relationship of Isaac and Rebecca. And so that's one of the first things that they notice, the first things they list here. Do not marry a Canaanite woman. We're sending you away to protect you from your brother Esau and for you to find a wife. Well, i want to pause there for a minute. So I wanna talk on this, okay? And I think it'll add some light, shed some light into the, the racial situation here in America as well. Verses like this have been used over the course of history to uh, to make segregation law. Not only personal preference, but law. Passages like this have allowed us to pursue separate places to live, to bask In our prejudice to bask in our discrimination and say we don't we don't talk to those people over there we don't like those people over there but I just want to make it clear and say that that's not what's going on in the scriptures we serve a God I mentioned of a a multitude a multi-ethnic God it's not that they were Canaanite women in and of themselves it's simply this the caution on this inter-ethnic marriage was not one of ethnicity but one of worship it was one of worship. Be equally yoked, the Lord says. It was a caution of worship to the Lord. It was a caution of obedience to the Lord. It was a caution of reverence to the Lord only. So the second thing I want to point out, despite Jacob's deception, he meets and receives a promise from God on his way. Genesis 28, starting in verse 10, it says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and laid down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway leading, resting on the earth, with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. It's a beautiful verse. It's a beautiful passage. The most important thing here is, it may not be the promise itself. We get the promise here, the promise that was given to Abraham, the promise that was given to Isaac, and now the promise has been passed down to Jacob. Isaac prayed for it. It's not so much the promise itself, but more so the manner in which he receives that promise. He lied down on his journey. He was wandering. He was tired. He was restless. He was on his way. He had a destination. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know how far it was going to B, how long it was gonna take, but all he knew was that he had to go. He was restless, he was tired, he was probably famished, he was probably thirsty. Some scholars say it was about 465 to 500 miles to get to his destination. That would take him roughly three to four weeks on foot to get there. And it's those moments, y'all, it's that moment that God meets Jacob. He's at his wit's end. He doesn't know which way is up. He doesn't know where to go. And that's when God comes into our lives. That's when God comes into our lives. Act two, God meets Jacob. It says that Jacob met God in a place that he called Bethel, the house of God. And then here we get the Jacob's ladder story, right? It says it here right before the promise he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to the heaven and the angels of the God were ascending and descending on it. I highlight those two words because it kind of shows this image to me. I can't prove this, but it shows this image to me ascending first, descending second. Can you imagine what that might mean? Jacob left his home. He thought he was all alone. He thought he was without God. He thought he was without a promise, but God had already promised it to Abraham. We operate in a way where God may not be with us all the time. We take things into our own hands. We deceive, we lie, we connive to get the things we want because we don't think God is there. We don't think he's gonna provide. We don't think he's gonna show up, but he shows up. He's with us. If you are in Christ all the time, if you're grafted into the promise, They were with him, ascending and descending on the ladder. This moment where he meets God, this is a testimony. This is a God story. Some of you guys call it here in these circles. This God story, I have a God story. I know many of you here in this room have a God story as well. And if you don't have a God story, I pray to God that you get one soon. I want nothing more than for you to know the God of all, the Lord that saves the Lord that you can trust in, okay? I remember there's this life before Jesus. This life for Jacob was one of lying, of deception. The life, I remember my testimony very, very vividly. The life I lived before God was one of lying and deception, one of manipulation, one of womanizing, right? That was my, that was my thing. But God came into my life and he wrecked me He showed me himself. He gave me grace, filled me full of his love. And he said, I am with you. Follow me. And so we see Jacob during this story. He receives the promise of his fathers. He also receives assurance that God will be with him. He receives a guarantee that he will return back to the land of which the inheritance will be. But there's also some things that this promise does not entail. And for us, it's the same thing. The promise of God, becoming one with God, God revealing Himself to you, God calling you to Himself and saying, Follow me, that does not entail a promise of no suffering. It does not entail a promise of no hardship. As a matter of fact, those of you guys who have been a Christian here for any amount of time, you can attest to the fact, you can testify that it probably got a little bit harder as soon as God stepped into your life. Those of you who aren't Christians, I'm sorry to break that terrible news to you, but that's just how it works. God wants to know that when he meets you, there's a reciprocal relationship. He's all for you, you're all for him. The things of this world no longer satisfy, that's true. Genesis 28:16. So when Jacob woke up from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord, the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured, poured oil on top of it. He anointed it. He called that place Bethel, the house of God, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I will, I am taking, and I will, if he watches over me on this journey, I am taking and will give me the food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household. Then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you have given me, I will give you a tenth. Okay? From not knowing God to knowing God to praise and worship. He was afraid, which is the proper response when the God of all creation meets you in the dead of the night, wakes you up in your sleep and shows you himself and shows you yourself. So act three, Jacob meets Rachel. I'm gonna narrate this for sake of time. I won't read this directly, but Jacob continues on his journey. He meets some shepherds on the way. They're at this well and they engage in this conversation, some random conversation, right? And then they look along the way. This is the important part. Fellas, you can you can attest to this with me. <laughs> he sees Rachel. He sees Rachel along the way. Right? Us guys, listen. Our life becomes instantly better when we meet that girl. <laughs> Am I right? Our lives become instantly better when we meet that girl. Right? Our lives, any good story involved in our lives involves a good girl. It's that girl a girl that captures our attention and ultimately steals all of our affections, and they become our wives, right? The story of my wife and I, when we first met, we were both basketball players at the University of Iowa, go Hawks. That's right. Uh, And so me and my teammate at the time, it was my junior year, she was coming in as a freshman on a recruiting visit, and we were down on Carver-Hawkeye Arena. If you've ever been down there before, uh, it's kind of been this like tunnel or this, I don't know, dungeon, okay? And up top, there's a mezzanine. You can walk around the mezzanine. <clears throat> and so we're down there, we're working out, having a good time, shooting hoops. I look up, if you've been there in any time in the day, you can only see like silhouettes if you're looking up there because the sun shines through in the windows, right? And so I was looking up, I was trying to, you know, cut my attention. I said, yo, all I could make out was this, you know, this this shape, this thing, <laughs> and I was like, Yep. <laughs> it, was, it was that quick. It was far off. This is what we hear from Jacob. It's almost instantaneous, fellas. Let it be known. We fall in love quicker than the ladies do. You know it. <laughs> it's just like that. Okay? Long story short, she becomes my wives. Listen, fellas, wives are God's gift to man. In Genesis, we see Adam falls asleep. God goes to Adam, takes a rib from his rib, fashions a woman for him. There was no creature in the land that was suitable for his mate. God made one for him. Flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone. In Proverbs, we see that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. God was good to Jacob. God's goodness came on Jacob when he didn't deserve it, and he shows him a wife. The fourth point, despite Jacob's deception, God provides for him a wife, listen, there's nothing that we could do. There's nothing that, there's no, there's no sin that we can commit where God doesn't desire, where God just desires to disrupt his plan for humanity for us. plan for man is one man. The fact that God, God's provision doesn't leave us when we're in our mess is proof of God's goodness. In other words, God is not using our bad circumstances, our bad situation, our bad health, our bad past, our repetitive sin natures, to punish us. He wants to provide for us, he wants to be for us. And we can make that connection to our cultural moment right now, our personal moments right now. He's using these moments, those off moments, to actually not push us away, but to draw us near to himself. God desires our flourishing and our well-being. He is glorified through it. The thing is, it just often doesn't look like how we expect it to look. And so we'll get that more here. Rachel runs home and tells Laban, her father, about Jacob. And Laban runs to meet Jacob, and he greets him. He runs after him. It's not common for men to run in this time, and he embraces him. He grabs him, and he kisses him. Verse 14, chapter 29, he says, You are my own flesh and blood, literally my bone and my flesh. It's the same language that's used in Genesis with man and woman, with husband and wife, right? After living with Laban for a month, Jacob Jacob was offered a job. Jacob wants Rachel as his wages. Laban says, hey, what do you want? You've been living here for this time. Is it right for you to live with me and me not pay you, for you to serve me and me not pay you? Name your wage. He basically walked over to Jacob and said, yo, your blessing is on you. I can see it. You are anointing my land. You're anointing my family. Name your price. Open the checkbook. And he says, I don't want your money. Remember that girl I saw? That's who I want. And so he agrees. Verse 16, this Rachel and Leah comparison. There's two daughters, two sisters, right? I love how the Bible like minces no words when it talks about the beauty of women. He says Rachel was not only beautiful, but she was also shapely. But describing Leah, he says Leah had Weak eyes, or maybe your translation says dull eyes. And so I want to dispel maybe this myth for a minute. The Hebrew word for uh, this word weak or dull is actually rock. And Leah always gets the short end of the stick when this passage is is taught, right? She gets the end of the stick that says, yo, she's not the good-looking sister. She's actually the ugly sister. But I don't think that's so much true. The Hebrew word for weak or dull here is rock. So this could mean weak or dull, but it could also mean delicate, or it can mean tender, or it can mean lovely. And so I don't think this description here is saying that Leah was the uglier sister. It was saying that Rachel just had a double portion of her beauty. Leah was not bad looking. It's supposed to lend to this comparison between the two, this tension between the two. She, Leah, was living in Rachel's shadow. laban nonetheless was good with the arrangement and says he can have rachel after serving him for seven years and so act four the final act jacob becomes the deceived And so in the meantime jacob's working for seven years and it comes time for the wedding it comes time to get married and the wedding takes place jacob's thinking it's time it's time to consummate this thing i want my wife he actually goes to laban and says Give me my wife so I can lay with her. It's probably one of the most affront, you know, sayings in the scripture. It's just as polarizing now as it is then. Yeah, it is, really. But he does it, okay? But when he wakes up, Jacob becomes the deceived. When he wakes up in the morning, the lights come on, and he looks over to the side, and he's looking, stretching, stretching his arms and saying, good morning, babe. And it's not Rachel. It's Leah. It's Leah. Okay, this is, listen guys, this is true for everything in our lives. It's not the fact that Jacob loved Rachel. He loved Rachel a lot. It's that when we get so caught up in the created things and the objects in our lives and the people in our lives and our jobs and the money, and it becomes all that we desire. It becomes the greatest affection. It fills us. It fills us with purpose. Once we capture, once we grab it, when we roll over the next morning, when the night turns to day and the lights are on, it's always Leah. It's always Leah as a metaphor. And so Jacob says to Laban, what have you done? You have tricked me. I worked away for seven years for your daughter, Rachel, and look, you've given me Leah. And so Laban says, silly Jacob, silly Jacob, listen, I don't know where you come from, but you, as the deceiver, deceived your older brother to get the blessing, to get the birth right here in my land, we don't do that. And you should have known better, he tells Jacob. And so Jacob has not every right, but some right at least to be upset, but he stays calm and he says, "Yo." i'll actually work seven more years for your daughter rachel and so they agree with that i want to highlight in chapter 29 verses 28 through 30 real quick what this kind of looks like despite jacob being deceived god is still actually good to him it says and jacob did so he worked those seven years and he also finished a week with leah and then laban gave him his daughter rachel to be his wife laban gave him his servant bilhah to his daughter rachel as his attendant jacob made love to Rachel also and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah and he worked for Laban another seven years this is an astonishing passage here okay the the agreement was to work for seven years for Rachel but Laban actually it's not Laban it's God's goodness but Laban actually gives Jacob Rachel before the seven years are complete. He only had to wait 7 days to complete the wedding week with Leah. And so he gives her he gives him Rachel. And so Rachel or so Jacob remember he met God on his way to Laban's house. And so in this moment you can tell that Jacob had changed. It's his character. That meeting with God, when we meet, when we when we meet God and we understand who he is and who we are in light of him, it changes everything about us. It changes our name. He gives us a new name. His goodness is shown through us, and we can no longer stay who we once were. Jacob is no longer the deceiver. He's no longer the heel grabber. He is now new. He's made new in relation to God. Jacob could have taken Rachel and Leah both after those seven days and dipped out. I can't say that I wouldn't have done that if I was in Jacob's shoes but Jacob stays with his commitment and actually commits to working those seven years. It's his character that's on display. His character changed. He didn't have to work those seven years, but he did. He stayed with his agreement. He was no longer a deceiver. He was not a liar. He stayed a man true to his word. And so as I finish here, I won't read all through Genesis 30. It kind of reads like a genealogy, but it goes to show this relationship with Rachel and Leah and Jacob and the sons that they have and who these sons are gonna be, okay? And it actually mirrors this competitive nature between Jacob and Esau, this kind of tension, this fight. And the fight's not for a birthright, it's not for a blessing, it's, it's in, their, in their story, it's for who is gonna give birth to the one that's gonna carry on the lineage, that's ultimately gonna give us Jesus Christ. And we know the story. Rachel's the, uh, Rachel's the favorite wife, Lee is not the favorite wife. Rachel gives us Joseph, who ends up being the right-hand man, of pharaoh in Egypt. Leah is, uh, she's the fertile wife. She's able to have children right away. And so this was the main tension point. Rachel was not able to have children. Leah was able to have children, but Leah fell into the same camp as Jacob. Leah says, I want to have children for the sake of my husband so that he may love me. And she had four children right away. She ends up having six that will ultimately become the 12, six of the 12 tribes of Judah, of Israel. And so with that first child, she says, my husband will love me. Second, my husband will love me. My husband will love me. It wasn't until the fourth child that she was able to say something different. It was Judah. This time, I will praise the Lord. She found God's goodness, not in her desire to cling to her husband, not in her desire and her ability to have children. But she found it in the God, the only one who can provide. But isn't this how we treat God? We get so busy thinking like we're we're doing all these things for God. We're doing this. We're doing that. We're, we're, We're so productive. We're creating things. We're holding these things up here and not holding God any higher than that. We're not seeking God, we're actually seeking self-assurance and we're seeking approval of others. And so we see this battle between Leah and Rachel they ultimately learn the same thing that the brothers learned. And so to answer the question, the beginning of the sermon, how can we experience the goodness of God? I want you guys to uh, look at Matthew 16. If you can turn to Matthew 16 with me. I'm almost done. Matthew 16, verse 25. How can we experience the goodness of God in this story? Jesus is predicting his, his, his death. He's talking to his disciples and he's saying, This is what it means to follow me. He says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world? What good will it be for someone to have the most children? What good will it be to raise the perfect children? What good will it be to get that job or that promotion or that house or that car you've always wanted? What good is it to be a perfect, even honor roll student? I love school for y'all students in here. Do good in school. But what good is that if you forfeit your soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And the answer is nothing. The answer is absolutely nothing. Our soul was priceless. And Jesus paid the only price that was ever possible to ever own it. It's his and it's his alone. Okay, one last story and I'll be done. I was leaving the house the other morning and um, I was going into work, going into the office and my I mentioned I have three daughters. And so last Sunday, Cornerstone Kids Church. I'm at Cornerstone and Cornerstone Kids, they put out these memory verses. And my daughter, she's five years old. My second child, she's three years old. And so we're going over the memory verses with our kids. And the three year old, she doesn't really care, but she's around anyway, right? And so she's actually getting the the drops of the knowledge, you know, while she's just hanging around my oldest kid. And, uh, you know, we're going over the verse. And then so Thursday, I go into the office. uh, I sit down, I get a message from my wife, and she sends me this video of my daughter reciting this memory verse and she's doing it off memory and she also sent me a second one of the second one doing it, which is a miracle, right? But y'all know how that works, those of y'all who have kids. Um, But this verse, it was, it testified to me. I heard it and I just said, man, from the mouth of babes, right? In John 16, 33, this is what it says. I have told you these things so that in me, you will have peace, this is Jesus speaking. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. The goodness of God does not come despite suffering. The goodness of God does not come despite hardship. Yes, Christian and non-Christian alike, we're gonna suffer. We're gonna go through trials and tribulations. The world's not gonna be all candy and rainbows and roses. But as the Christian, I'm going to speak to the Christians in here. When those troubles come, if we're quick to run to pacifiers, if we're quick to run to the rails, if we're quick to put our hands out and grab whatever near and drag it down with us in hopes of holding ourselves up, we're never going to have the hope. We're never going to have the assurance. We're never going to have the truth and understanding that God has actually overcome the world. We won't know it. That's the issue today. We don't know it because we're quick to grab the pacifier. We're quick to hold on to the rails, to put our backs against the wall, to hold on to a friend, to hold on to something that can't sustain, to hold on to something that can't promise us what our soul longs for and desires. It longs for a savior. And we can't know in the assurance. We can't be sure, we can't be confident in the assurance that God overcomes until we're willing to lose. Until we're willing to say, with Leah, not, I'm gonna look good in front of my friends now. My wife will finally be proud of me. My children, will come home and hang out with me again. It's only when we say, this time I will praise the Lord. And we have to know, we've gotta meet Jesus to know that that's where we're supposed to be. That's where we're supposed to be. Listen, I don't want you to miss this, and this is it. God is not after our behavior change, He's after our heart change. He wants all of our affections. He wants us to stop behaving and start believing. And when we fully believe in God, when we believe he is who he says he is, when he reveals himself to us, then we would have our hearts changed. We will no longer desire to cling on to the things of this world, and we can finally say, we can finally rest in the perfect truth that Jesus alone is worthy, Jesus alone is all, and Jesus alone saves. Let me pray for us. Father, you are too good. You are gracious, you are holy, you are forgiving, you are just. You give us what we don't deserve, Lord, when we stray from you. And as often as we do it, you continue to pursue us. You continue to work your way in us. Lord, you desire for us to know you, even when we don't desire to know you. When we want other things, Lord, you want us. What kind of relationship is that? How? Why? Why? Can we just ask why? Lord, I confess the times when I don't fall on my knees to praise you. I confess the times when I don't run to you in hardship. I confess the times when I view other things as more worthy. Lord, I confess on our behalf. I confess for myself. And Lord, I pray that you change that in us. You you touch us. You change our hearts. You mold us. You shape us. Allow us to give up. Allow us to throw up our hands and fully surrender and utter that finally, now I will praise the Lord. Father, we pray these songs in your mighty Son, Jesus' name. Amen.